right, everybody. Welcome to the Base Brotherhood, episode number two. We are here with Deeper Thrill. My name is Alex, a.k.a. Lead Pacer. I'm your host, and I'm joined by Lasad Corday, our production guru, and, of course, Deeper Thrill. So starting off, I've been following Deeper Thrill for a few years. We've had more interaction the last couple of years um, as I've been more active, but he's someone I've always admired, a super smart guy, really one of the best on Twitter. And, uh, but I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your upbringing and educational background? Sure. Um, I'm 34 years old, I'm part Hungarian, part French. Uh, I live in America. And my education background, I did my bachelor's in biomedical engineering in 2009, master's in 2010, and PhD in 2013. And since then, I've been building custom medical AI systems for uh, clients and um, mostly focused on medical imaging like MRI and CT scans. And I'm just, I love AI. I, uh, I'm all into it. And that's kind of the, uh, the background of me. Oh, excellent. Thank you. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about the origins of AI and in doing some research prior to our conversation, the term was coined, first coined in 1956, but the first I heard about it was Deep Blue against Gary Kasparov in the uh, chess matches in the mid nineties. And I remember that made huge national news. And I think the first time Deep Blue went up against Kasparov, Kasparov prevailed, and this was in 1996. And then the IBM team for Deep Blue made adjustments, and a year later, they beat Kasparov. And he was livid because IBM's team had made adjustments during the match, um, and obviously they had a repository of his prior moves, and uh, they were able to win. So that was my first introduction to AI. When did you first discover this amazing field? Uh, probably around the same time, to be honest. I mean, Deep Blue was the pivotal moment where the machine beat man. And chess is at the point where an, a human grandmaster pretty much cannot beat an AI at this point. We're at the point where your cell phone has enough processing power where... Uh, the best grandmaster in the world can't touch an AI. The, the, the rankings of a human are up to like 3,100 and the rankings of an AI are at like 3,900, if not higher, which means that it's just impossible for a human to beat it. But I started getting into AI in 2006 or 2005 when I joined college as a biomedical engineer and didn't really know what I wanted to do with my computer skills because to me, computers always came easy, but I didn't really have a direction to go with them. And then when I learned about biomedical engineering, I was like, oh, well, I could use my computer skills to not just sit in the basement like a nerd, but actually build something that helps patients. And then in 2006, I found a professor who was working on analyzing MRI images, and basically you convert an image to numbers and you can analyze which textures represent cancer and which don't. And I was like, oh, that seems easy. <laughs> Silly me. But right. um, at the time, I was like, oh, well, that's cool. Let's do that. And this was before modern neural networks were even a thing, which happened in 2012. Uh, so in 2005 and 2006, I started getting into it. I wrote a few papers. I got a few patents published. I started to go to some international competitions on analyzing MRI images for cancer. And I started to win some competitions. And from there... 
I just got really into learning how to build algorithms, learning how to develop AI. And then in 2012, right when I was done with my PhD, um, I did my PhD in three years from 2010 to 2013. And right at 2013, 2012, um, some brilliant researchers decided that they would point computer graphics cards instead of at video game rendering onto AI and training neural networks. And it ended up blowing the competition out of the water. And since then, every company has jumped on the deep learning bandwagon and built these neural networks because the beauty of using graphics cards to build neural networks instead of video games is that instead of taking 10 weeks to train a neural network, you can do it in 10 hours. And that's what really changed the game. But I was in it, I had been in this game way before that was even a popular thing. I'm the hipster AI guy. <laughs> <laughs> so where are we in the process of widespread usage in the medical industry? Um, so the regulations make it difficult. The FDA in America and other countries have their own regulatory bodies. They limit the amount of AI that could that is basically widespread because they don't want AI that was trained on one system to be used at another hospital that might have different hardware or different parameters or different patient demographics or other things. And so widespread AI usage in medicine is very much on um, transcribing doctor's notes. So the doctors will speak into a little microphone and it'll transcribe it. It's on trying to help doctors make decisions um, in terms of recommending treatments or recommending diagnosis, but it's not replacing the doctors. And it's, it's a few years away from really growing to be widespread use. Right now it's under clinical trials and right now it's pretty much consolidated into only large companies that have millions of dollars of funding who can afford to push a product through the FDA to get actual approval for it. Right, so it's being hindered quite a bit by just the, the government bureaucracy and just the medical system in general. I mean, that's, that's gotta be a huge pain in the ass because there are people that could use this right now. Um, are there any positives to it taking so much longer than maybe it should? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if the AI gives a diagnosis or recommend a treatment, you want it to be correct. You don't want the AI to say, hey, you're free and clear, you're fine, and you end up having stage four cancer. That's the risk. And the AI that was trained at one hospital might not apply to another hospital. So the FDA's role is really to make sure that AI that is out there on the market, and the FDA doesn't prevent doctors from using AI. Let's be clear, the FDA's only role is to prevent marketing. You're not allowed to market an AI without FDA approval. The doctors can use it under investigational use. They can use it during clinical trials. The doctor, one of the doctor I worked with as a client said to me, a doctor could use a broken broomstick to save a patient if he thought that was the best treatment, but you can't have companies marketing some AI software as diagnosing patients with 87% accuracy if that's not applicable to multiple hospitals, whether it was trained on one hospital. So the FDA and the other regulatory bodies of different countries are there to basically slow the roll, put the pause on a lot of this AI and say, hey, if you're going to make a claim, it better be damn well correct. And, you know, that's the 
the benefit of the FDA slowing it down because you don't want to go into a clinic and this robot says you have some disease and you really don't. Or the robot was trained on hardware from one manufacturer and you're trying to use it on your x-ray machine or your blood work analysis you know machine or your mri machine and it just has completely different hardware parameters and it's just not applicable so the fda slows it down but the problem also is that means that innovation stifled because entrepreneurs these days cannot really get their foot in the door with developing clever new algorithms when there's millions of dollars that it costs to get anything even potentially FDA approved. So it stifles innovation in the name of saving patient lives. So let's talk a little bit about getting FDA approval. So if you're a startup in this field, what are you looking at in terms of how much money do you need and how much time are you gonna to have to allocate to be able to endure from the beginning all the way through FDA approval? Um, money, probably from three to $9 million to get a simple FDA approval. Um, wow. In terms of time, three years, probably minimum. Um, you need to already be a well-funded startup with like a series A or a series B uh, set of investment from a large institution or a venture capitalist or a large angel investor to even have a chance at this. So you need to go through clinical trials. You need to make claims about the efficacy and the safety of your device. If it's a physical device, you have to subject it to things like shake tests where you just like simulate, you buy machines that can simulate shaking it as, as they roll it down the hospital corridors. You have to, if it's software, you have to go through cybersecurity audits. And all of this is important, but all of this requires $50,000 here, $50,000 there, $50,000 there, and then you do the clinical trial, and then you wait a year for the results, and then you do the long-term study, and then you have the code audited. And by the time you're done with all of this, you spent $5 million, and then you get the FDA approval or so. That's kind of the process. Are there a lot of people that have ideas in this field, like during a PhD program where they start working on a project and the university is funding it and that is able to kind of a system like how does somebody, how does an entrepreneur get started in this? Like where normally are they at um, in their education or in their business career? So a lot of times you'll have someone who is, it could be an undergrad or a master student or a PhD student who does a school project and thinks it could be profitable and they want to start a business around it. Now the university will own the patents to this and they'll own all the IP and you have to basically convince the university to license it to you for thousands of dollars and then you have to find your own funding. The universities will support you in terms of they'll potentially pay for the legal cost of filing a patent. Um, and they'll own the patent that they file, but they will assume the $30,000 or so that it costs to file a medical patent. But if you're the student who has a great idea, what you'll usually do is band together with maybe a professor who will take a small stake, who will have his name on it or her name on it. And then you'll find a few other students who work with you on the project. And then you'll go out there and try to find funding. Universities are very good at supporting research and they are very bad in my experience at actually helping entrepreneurs find funding for their project. So it's up to the entrepreneur 
to go find outside funding, whether from an angel investor or a venture capitalist or some other syndicate or some other source of funding, and then negotiate with the university a license to use the patent to start a company. That's the general process. And it can get really tricky. And the reason I ask is I have a friend of mine. Um, he's a biomedical engineer, PhD from Rutgers. And he had actually started working on a device while in his PhD program. And he wanted to keep doing it and, and really pursue it in earnest, but he couldn't really get the business deal right with the university and he had to drop the project. And so it makes me wonder how many, because you know, there's a lot of energy that people have in their mid to late twenties. They're very creative. Their mind's a sponge. They can work 16, 18 hours a day. And so you have these people that are, you know, peak creativity and intelligence and they're getting trapped and they, they lose these great projects in the university system. I would assume that's pretty common. That story is almost identical to my story. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> that is what happens. I don't, <laughs> that happens all the time. <laughs> and well, it makes you better, right? You're, you're a grizzled veteran now and harder and smarter than you were before. Yeah, I, this is why I do medical custom medical AI building for clients where I try to negotiate equity positions in their products instead of trying to launch Smart. my own yet. In the future, once I have the funding, I may launch my own medical device product. But at this point, I actually enjoy building custom AI for other multiple other companies and seeing what they do with it. Yeah, and you're also learning a lot along the way. I mean, it's it's all really paid training, right? Yeah. Okay. Paid training for a certain time. And, you know, the skills of building an AI in the medical field are applicable for building AI in any field at this point. Mm -hmm. So how do physicians and doctors feel about AI? Because my experience with doctors is that if you can give them a tool or a shortcut, you can do something better, quicker, they're going to be all about it. But at the same time, if we've got a bunch of robots diagnosing people doing retinal scans and determining you know, all these different potential health outcomes, it could get scary for them in a sense. So how do doctors, how do physicians, how do nurses, people feel about AI? Well, the common trope is the robots are going to replace all our jobs, which is complete bullshit. The robots are going to <laughs> replace the worst jobs. So if you're a mediocre doctor, yeah, you're at risk. But if you're a top doctor, they actually like AI. They actually want, they, the way the, the people I work with view it is the AI is like a radiologist who's seen a million scans in their lifetime. It's like a, the best helper out there. And I think the, the AI is going to make the doctors more efficient with their workload. So the doctor will now be able to look at 300 images per day instead of 100. And they'll be seen like a super human in terms of their skills. But if you're a shitty radiologist at some second rate clinical center and you really suck at your job, yeah, you're at risk because the AI could do just as good a job as you. But if you're a top doctor, you're going to be even even more demand, which maybe is uh, perpetuating somewhat of a wealth divide or a skill divide, so to say. 
but the top doctors are we're going to need the top doctors to help give training data for the rate for the ai we're going to need top doctors to use the ai and then make a final decision the ai should be and will be used for decision support not decision replacement so the ai is going to give recommendations it's going to give probabilities it's going to give all these it's like a it's like a hammer like if you're a good craftsman you're not scared of a really advanced drill if you're a mm -hmm. shitty craftsman you're not needed if the drill could do what you do. It's that view. Right. So um, in my research, you, you learn how big data is such a large component for biomedical AI. And there's a, there's a need for, for more data to really implement this the way that it should be. Um, are we able... Do, do we have enough big data available to roll this out in the next five, 10 years? Um, available, yes. Accessible, no. So the data is out there, but every hospital treats their data like gold because they know the intellectual property profitability of their data. So, and they, you know, they wrap it up into patient privacy safety issues and they don't want to share their data in case patient data leaks. But in truth, Every hospital collects their data, and they are, it's very difficult technologically and politically to get them to share their data. So there's some efforts by the U.S. government, such as the TCIA database, that just collects a bunch of public data that's anonymized. But, you know, if you, if you don't have a large data set size, if you don't have tens of thousands of studies to train an AI on, your model's not going to be that good, no matter what. Mm -hmm. anyone says and what's sad and what i know what's like the red pill truth about the medical ai industry is that half the devices out there were trained on data sizes of like n equals 400 and any data scientist knows that that is not a sufficient number of data points to train a good model but the fda just kind of approves it especially if they know the person in charge of it and there's there's a lot of handshaking going on, and maybe I'm a little cynical, but I just don't think that any of these AI models that were FDA approved with N equals 500 images or data points are really viable. And yet they are FDA approved because they spent the money, they did the clinical trials, and they showed the results they needed to show. Um, but the problem is the data is not easily shareable and even large companies like Google have trouble gathering enough data to train good AI models, AI models in medicine. And that leads to the next question is that we're really shackled from data, data sharing. And you look at a place like China and the government can do whatever the hell they want to do in terms of looking at people's health information. And that's got to be a huge advantage for them in the field of AI. Yeah. Um, anyone, there's economies of scale and China itself publishes a lot more AI things, but anytime a, anytime a country facilitates data sharing like China does, uh, a, a decent AI model with a lot of data will significantly outperform a really good AI neural network with very few data points. And that's just the harsh truth about it. So how much further is China ahead of the United States right now? Um, in AI? Yes. So they're a little ahead, but 
they're shackled by their own issues. We have a lot of entrepreneurial minded medical doctors in America who are doing really clever, innovative things. China has a very good copycat strategy where they will take the best innovations from America and then scale it 10 times what we do. So if we come up with a clever AI model that uses, let's say, genetic markers and blood markers and an MRI image to predict prostate cancer, China's going to copy exactly what we did and they are going to do it 10 times larger and then 10 times better. But they don't necessarily wow. have the innovation to do it in the first place. So that's the difference. Whereas the American companies that are invested in the AI and a lot of big pharma is headquartered in America. Let's not forget that. They have a lot of power and medical technology companies and medical device companies. A lot of these companies that make the machines that are used in China, they're headquartered in America. So there's a lot of competitive advantages to America that China doesn't have, even though China can easily copycat anything that's published here. So where are the best um, computer scientists, biomedical engineers? Are they being educated in the United States? Um, or does China... Go ahead. Maybe. Best computer scientists and best AI engineers at this point is worldwide. With YouTube, with GitHub, with Kaggle. K-A-G-G-L-E is the big computer uh, AI competition website. You can be in any country in the world and get educated on cutting-edge AI research. But best medical AI, I think, is still in America simply because of the access to innovative and entrepreneurial-minded medical doctors who want to work with young, budding medical AI uh, initiates, so to say. Well, that's exciting to hear because the American spirit is about being entrepreneurial and risk-taking and overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds and finding creative ways to get things done. So it sounds like in spite of some natural advantages China may have, we're still the thought leaders and we still have a really good opportunity here to be at the forefront of this industry. Yeah, and I don't think that's going to go away because there's just a lot of money in America too. Like China has a lot of data and a lot of scale and a lot of – they do have a lot of money and they have a lot of government support, but there's still – uh, a huge, huge, huge amount of money pouring into investments that stem from America. That's not going away anytime soon. Right. So when it comes to biomedical AI, this is all really positive from my standpoint, and, and it's taking longer than maybe we would like for it to, but it's a really positive future. And you know, improving patient outcomes, hopefully reducing the cost of care, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of people that are scared of the term AI in general. Um, you know, you watch the social dilemma and you see how big tech is hacking our brains <laughs> and AI is a big part of that. Um, is there anything we should be scared about with AI on the biomedical side of things? Um. So there's things to be scared about with AI and things to be scared about with AI and biomedical. So in terms of the biomedical field, the AI could say that, hey, you're at risk for type 2 diabetes, we're going to raise your insurance rates. Or the AI could say, hey, you know, you need to follow this specific diet and it ends up being wrong. Or the AI could say, hey, you know, 
you are a risk to others around you and the AI can sequester you and quarantine you because the AI thinks that's best for humanity from a medical standpoint. Or the AI could say, hey, you know, you have no hope of beating this cancer. So, you know, you are put in the bucket of people that's not worth treating financially. So those are the risks from the biomedical side. Whereas maybe if maybe some ignorance is bliss, where if you didn't know all this information, you would have surpassed whatever the AI predicted you had a 1% chance of beating. So I would say that's a <laughs> biomedical risk. Right. Well, this reminds me of the 23andMe DNA test, mm -hmm. which you have these you know different options. You can look at your you know, ancestral background and where your ancestors were, what countries, what regions within that country. And then there's the health report that you can add on to that, which a lot of people don't want to get. <laughs> yeah, wisely. Of course, I'm interested. I want to know <laughs> what may be going on. But Yeah, but then there's also the confirmation bias where, or some sort of thing where you end up seeing something and then make life decisions when even though you had a 70% chance of some disease that you were in the 30%. You don't know. Right, right. Yeah, you're just trusting a $79, $99 test to give you yeah. really accurate results. So, um, but, you know, we, we, we've talked about these good components of AI. There are people that are sounding the alarm right now, like Elon Musk, talking about <laughs> a dystopian future and AI could be really opening Pandora's box to all kinds of things that we can't even fathom. And he thinks we may even be too late in the game to really stop this. What do you think about Elon's perspective? Um, well, I still go back to the Elon Musk quote of building AI is like summoning a demon. It's very fear mongering in a way. And it might not be wrong because if the AI can make intelligent decisions that we can't understand, but end up being correct, you know, that's scary. If, if a machine, if a set of silicon chips can tell me who I'm most likely to end up with married and have a happy marriage, and it turns out that me actually meeting people in real life is not good enough compared to what the AI says, that's scary. You know, that's, that's the unknown. But, you know, AI can be used for good or bad. AI, like any piece of knowledge or science or technology, can be used to make smart weapons or smart diagnosis it's the same thing um ai you know people are scared of what they call the singularity but they fail to understand what that means they're scared of an ai that outsmarts humans but really what the singularity means it's a recursive exponential feedback loop where the ai ends up coding itself into a smarter ai which itself codes itself into a smarter ai like the movie transcendence where then the johnny depp character ends up being an AI, a primitive AI that designs its own computer chip, which then designs its own next computer chip, which then builds the better AI. And it's just an exponential recursive feedback loop, but we're not there yet. And I think fear mongering about AI is just natural, naturally being scared of any new technology like Einstein's theories of relativity were used to go to the moon and predict black holes, but it was also used to create nuclear weapons. So it's in the hands of the beholder in terms of these modern pieces of science, knowledge, or technology. Yeah. And you're making me think about Elon Musk, who also, you know, is the guy behind Neuralink, 
Yeah. I mean, he would like the us irony. to be able to. <laughs> yeah, the irony is just crazy. Like, we want to be able to put a supercomputer on top of our brains and access, you know, via the internet, all of humanity's knowledge. And that just, to me, is like, what are we talking about, Elon? Why are we scared of AI? But this is what you're proposing. <laughs> I agree. I just. AI is going to be scary because the scary part to me is less about. AI itself trying to destroy humanity, like in these movies, that's stupid because AI doesn't want things. AI is programmed by people. AI is a sophisticated hammer. To say that AI thinks is like saying a boat swims. It doesn't swim like a fish. It floats mechanically on the water and it directs itself, whatever. AI doesn't think or have like thoughts or consciousness or whatever we call the subjective experience of us seeing reality outside of our eyes. It doesn't do that. People think it does because it's a primitive way to think, but really AI just memorizes patterns and spits out tomorrow's weather from a, an aggregation of all the weather sensors around the world. That's just memorizing patterns. That's not having an internal uh, representation of reality with, thought, with a thought process. And that's what people get wrong about AI. Now, AI will, like what Elon Musk is saying about Neuralink, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> Let's just say that, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> well, we seem to have a lot of problems getting in the way of even making that happen. Yeah, it's hard um, enough as it so, is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the thing that people, you know, are spooked. You know, I remember 2001, A Space Odyssey, and how the computer... How, yes. Yeah, and I think that people are spooked and think that there's you know there's a supercomputer that can develop some kind of human consciousness. Yeah, and that uh, you know same thing with like transcendence. You know, with Johnny Depp's char character basically uploading his consciousness or his spirit, and it just perpetuates and builds on itself. I think that's the fear. That we have, and it's probably an irrational fear that we're getting from Hollywood, isn't it? Yeah, consciousness. Like, we don't even know what that is in the biological wetware brain, much less it might even not be in the brain. It might be in the body, or it might be that matter itself is some congealed spirit stuff. Like, we don't know what consciousness is. We have no idea. So to say that you can just transfer it and upload it is, to me, kind of silly. Yeah, it's it's Hollywood. It is. Hollywood. It's a great movie. <laughs> but there's also the monolith in the movie. That that's that's the scary part of that movie. Yeah. We all need to. Go, I need to go rewatch that movie. <laughs> it, it's been a while. That is a but, great uh, movie. So speaking of another big tech guy, you know, the hot word the last few months has been metaverse. And Mark Zuckerberg, I remember watching on YouTube live. You know, he announces that Facebook is now Meta. And he goes through a very awkward presentation on what the metaverse is going to be like and, you know, interacting with holograms and here's how great it can be. And I'm like horrified. I'm saying if this is what the future looks like, I want no part of it. But um, there was one of the reasons why I think it was so compelling is because I, I was thinking I can see this being exactly what people want, living in a world of holograms and you know, interacting with people that they're not, you know, physically present and being physically detached from others. But I also saw a lot of cool things that could come out of it. And so I want to ask you, 
What do you think about the metaverse? I think it's going to be like Ready Player One, uh, the book and the movie. Uh, I also read the book Ready Player Two, which they have not made a movie about, but it basically just describes this this world where you are in a hotel room and you wake up and you put your virtual reality goggles and suit on and you can be whomever you want in this virtual reality avatar world. And I think there is a very deep natural instinct of people to just escape from the drudgery of real, physical, boring, biological reality and let their mind roam free. So I think it is inevitable. I think someone made an interesting comment on Twitter, which was like, Facebook did the cleverest thing ever. They basically just rebranded virtual reality, which has been around for years, as the metaverse, which also has been a term around for years, and they made it theirs. <laughs> so like this inevitable transition that was always going to happen, regardless of any company, they just kind of usurped it, <laughs> which was brilliant right. from a marketing perspective. But I just don't see us – I see them being a bit of a split between people who want to live in their pods all day, so to say, and as any virtual – or any sci-fi book or movie from the past 60 years has predicted, and people who are kind of a return to nature, a return to real physical reality world. And I think that the people who live in – I mean, both groups are going to do very well financially – both groups are going to have pros and cons. Like you and I connected on a primitive version of the metaverse, i.e. Twitter, right? We connected online. So like I don't diminish the benefits of it. Wouldn't it be cool if you and I right now were doing this podcast in a virtual reality avatar suit, right? Like maybe that'd be cool. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I think it'd be inevitable, but I also think it's going to be addictive. And there's all the problems with the social media, the echo chambers and the addictiveness and the fact that – Maybe it's not good that we can spawn anything we want to imagine into a digital world within four seconds. Maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe we should have to earn how to build a city. Maybe we shouldn't be able to spawn in four seconds, you know? Maybe there's some some wisdom in it actually having to take real life, real world gritty effort to do something and the metaverse takes that away. Yeah, I mean... I remember after I watched it, I thought, oh, my God, birth rates are going to fl plummet even yeah. worse than they already are. I mean, people will just never leave the house. And, um, you know, every since it would it, just be too easy. Why would you leave the house? But then I thought, you know, what would be really cool is if we had like a mixed use center, kind of like a rec center mm -hmm. where people could do gaming. They could live in an AI world, but they also have like a pool and a gym and they can play pickleball and there's putt putt golf like a like a top golf but it I kind like of that. incorporates the metaverse right i like that i think it's it sounds like such a cop-out but you got to balance the digital world with the real world too and kind of combine them in some sort of social world where you are actually still socializing with people around you like what was there is this there was a, a statistic about how the, ink, the rise of Tinder ended up decreasing the actual amount of sex men had in their early 20s. Yeah. Like everyone was living in this Tinder world, but no one was actually meeting up in person as much as they could have. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's terrible for men because they're men, you know, any outlet they can to meet women, they're going to take it. But for women, they're living on their phones and they're judging these guys. And, you know, I, I know you've probably seen it that, 
you know, men will pretty accurately gauge, gauge women's attractiveness on a bell curve, mm -hmm. but women are fishing in the top 10%. And those are the only guys that are getting likes. So there's so many guys that are, you know, they're going to be stuck in the pot in the metaverse. <laughs> yep. But, you know, to be fair, there's plenty of women who are not privy to that archetype and they're not perpetuating that either. That's true. It just makes the wholesome ones more wholesome. It just, it polarizes everyone. It does. And, and we're living in echo chambers and, you know, you're, it's just, you're getting this, you're fed the same information over and over again. So, no, you're, you're right about that. So on the metaverse, and I'm not sure if this is, you know, somewhat related to your, to your field or knowledge set, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is, but, you know, living in a world of holograms, we're going to have to go beyond 5G. We're going to have to go into 6G and probably beyond to be able to, for people to live in this world of holograms. Um, how far do you think we are away from that happening? I mean, it seems like we're quite a ways off. Well, I also noticed this week the airlines all said, don't roll out 5G yet, and they canceled a bunch of flights just in case 5G disrupted their on-flight navigator computers. So, like, we don't know the effects of 5G, but, you know, I actually think we're closer than we think we are in terms of having enough bandwidth for everyone because the way hard drive space is now so cheap that you can buy a terabyte of cloud storage for, like, $3 a month and something ridiculously cheap, I think bandwidth's going to go the same way because at this point on 5G, I can be going for a walk in a suburban part of the country and have no lag, no jitter, no issues at all with a video chat. I mm -hmm. can be pretty much almost anywhere in America, except for some really rural places, and have no problem streaming videos. So I actually see a trend where 5G is enough now to stream high-definition Netflix on a moving train going 100 miles an hour. And so I actually think that 6G, 5G, all that stuff will be enough to actually have the bandwidth necessary to go into the metaverse. And I think that the compression technology will move at a faster pace than the metaverse's resolution will. And we're not going to have as much of an issue connecting to it um, as we think we will. I think bandwidth is going to go the way of hard drive space where it's just become super cheap. That's what I think. That's awesome. I mean, if you like the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. So um, wrapping up and talking about something that I think probably brought you and I together. Um, is there anything else we want to cover with AI that you'd like to say? Um, yeah. One last thing is I think the future AI the future of AI is not some super smart robot, but more like a public utility. So any company is going to be able to sign up for a chatbot service that they can plug in their customer list and a chatbot will work. I think you want to detect objects in an image. Like, for example, you want to have an AI count the number of bottles of liquor at the end of the night for inventory. It'll be a simple service. I think AI, think of it more like public electricity than a brilliant Terminator-style AI. I think people misinform themselves and think it's going to be some super smart robot 
where really they should be thinking of it more like public utilities like water and electricity. And for businesses, it'll be AI. So I think that this paradigm shift that people need to accept is that AI is not a brilliant robot that's going to outsmart you. It's more like uh, public electricity available for all at a certain price. That's what I would say to, to end the conversation on AI. That's a really good message. And I guess as a follow-up to that, why do you think there is so much scaremongering about it and people don't understand it the way that you just described it? Well, because theoretically it's possible for the super smart robot that outsmarts all of humans. That is not outside of the realm of possibility. And people, sci-fi has been talking about that for decades, if not centuries. I mean, there's been um, automatons, they called them, in ancient Greece, where it was like a, a giant uh, copper robot. I forget the name of it. We can look it up. doesn't matter. But the point is that, you know, humans have feared this humanoid-looking thing that's outsmarting humans for centuries, if not millennia even. You know, who knows where we came from? Maybe maybe it's an imprint of an alien. I don't know. But the point is that it's been, this has been, like, in our subconscious for many, many, many centuries, Whereas viewing it as a public utility like I do only comes from actually handling it day in and day out and seeing the actual business applications of it. It's the natural fiction AI trope of viewing it as a, a super smart robot that's going to take over humanity and enslave us like the, like the Satan metaphor, the devil metaphor. But, you know, in actuality, it's I just see it being more like a public utility, not because I want it to be, but just because that's how I interact with it personally on a daily basis. I mean, yeah, you're somebody that understands how the bread is actually made. Yeah. And you can see through the BS and you're tethered by the pragmatic realities and the struggles of just trying to get this stuff to market and make it a reality. And you see how far we have to go. You're yeah. immersed in it every day. Exactly. Okay, so um, moving on. When did you first hear about COVID? <laughs> that's, that's an abrupt transition. Okay, so yeah. uh, January 2020, uh, I was on Twitter, and it's interesting because I ended up hearing about COVID, I would say the same time as most head to states did, which to me is the good and the bad side of social media. So we all kind of are getting our information as rapidly as anyone else these days, which is scary, but true. And so I heard about it as more fear mongering from people on Twitter who were like, guys, this is going to be the big one. This, 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 <laughs> this virus from China, it's spreading and it might really actually get exponential and really spread and really go viral. Like, don't, don't sleep on this one. This is the big one. And obviously no one listened to them. Because no one listens to the Twitter, the profit Twitter, which I call them. Um, and so <laughs> it was just interesting to me that I heard about it back in mid-January 2020, mid -January 2020. And it was, this is the big one. This, this could destroy the humanity. This is, this is the zombie apocalypse moment. And then it was also the same people who said, like uh, six months later, hey, this isn't as big a deal as we want. This is some bullshit. And it's just profit Twitter is just always so far ahead of the curve and oh, all the wrong ways and all the right ways. It's hilarious. <laughs> right. Well, so, you know, we were sounding the alarm when we saw those videos 
of people being locked into their homes with, yeah. you know, soldiers outside and the, the hazmat suits, um, you know, people falling flat on their face in the middle of the street, which I mean, now I go, I look at that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how could we have fallen for that? But <laughs> it was so, I mean, it was like the movie Contagion yeah. uh, to reference another film back in like 2011, which was, you know, we've been primed to fear this kind of thing and we believe that it's long overdue. So when we see these viral videos on Twitter, it just freaked the hell out of us. And I remember, you know, Trump poo-pooed it. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, of course, she poo-pooed it when she went in Chinatown and said, hey, guys, you don't have to wear a mask. Don't worry about anything. All of our politicians did. And then all of a sudden, it's 15 days to slow the spread. <laughs> and it's funny because... I was I was living in New York City at the time, and in Chinatown, I would like take an Uber to like a, a restaurant in Chinatown. The Uber driver or the taxi driver was like, "I don't want to go there." Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> like, That's you a great sure? Chinatown, like, I'm gonna drop you off about three blocks away from Chinatown because if this shit came from China, I'm staying the heck away from it. And they're like, "I don't care if you call me racist, but I am not getting the China flu." <laughs> Yeah, peace out, man. Good luck. Yeah, like, have fun. (laughs) And I'm there walking through Chinatown. Like, I'm the only one without a mask because a lot of them wore masks even before COVID just because of the SARS outbreak in 2008. Not a lot. I didn't know that. more than most other parts of New York City. Yeah. So, you know, I I go back to my experience. I remember, you know, this, you know, 15 days to slow the spread and everybody was just holed up in their homes. And there was this this fear that just permeated everything and everything stopped for, I guess, like six to eight weeks. And it was the most eerie, crazy energy that I've ever experienced. What was it like for you whenever you, you know, you're on profit Twitter, you see these crazy videos, you realize something might be going on. What was going on with you? Were you in New York at this time? Yeah. And when I say profit, I mean P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Correct. P-R-O-F-I-T, which you could confuse with money Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different ballgame. Just, ball just to be clear. Yeah. But, <laughs> I, um, I like them too. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're good too. Um, but, um, well, so yeah, I was, in, I was in New York City at the time. And on March 12th or something, the grocery store aisles were empty. The lines were like two hours to even get to the register. Everyone's like, bunker down. There's going to be no food for six months in New York City. And the fear in New York City was this is an island. If they're going to quarantine any anyone that's super dense, they're going to quarantine us. So if you want to get out of New York City, get out now. Take the train now because they could lock down the train stations. It was just the the atmosphere around early March in New York City was like we're onto apocalypse bunker mode now. Everyone, get your get get your oat like oatmeal was like the thing that was like gone. <laughs> oatmeal, it's like what can last us for six months if all the supply chain shut down and all the food's gone? Oatmeal, pasta, like no one wanted like the meat and the veggies and the healthy stuff. Like that was there was plenty of that on the shelves. <laughs> it was the oatmeal. It was the pasta. It's the shit that you could survive on if you had to for six to 12 months canned foods was gone the grocery stores were empty and i was just like well i'm gonna leave the city so i left the city and stayed with my fiance for a little while <laughs> so that's a good move but wait, wait I, you know what else was uh, was fully stocked on the shelf 
was already the artificial meat. Yeah, no one wanted that anyway. That's I what don't know you really how the, saw. No one wanted that. Nobody wanted that nobody stuff. Wanted that. So, um, okay, so you leave the city. You're with your girlfriend. And what was your progression in terms of what is the level? You're ascertaining the level of seriousness about all of this. I took and, it very seriously for like a week to two weeks because I'm like, if the incubation period of this is truly a week and you could be spreading this asymptomatically for a week, it could already be too late. It could already be out there. Everyone who f looks healthy around me could be already sick and spreading it and we could all be screwed. So for a good week or two, I just, I'm a little introverted, so I didn't care just locking down. After two weeks, I kind of got over it, and I went back to the city, and the streets were empty. There was no one on the streets in New York City. <laughs> it was like no one, like, it's just, it's, it's very eerie for daytime to see empty streets in New York City where there's always cars going. So I would just start taking walks around the city. I would just, I don't know, man. I, I took it seriously in that I just didn't hang out with people because... I was just focused on my own business at the time, and then I just kind of got over it. And my experience was pretty similar to that, too. After a few weeks, you know, you start questioning it. After a couple, probably six to eight weeks, I thought, what's going on here? This just seems ridiculous. And, uh, you know, you got to find ways to eat. You got to make money. Yeah. So the hustle doesn't stop, does it? No, and... Remember, this happened in mid-March. Uh, the George Floyd stuff happened in early June. And so I thought it was very interesting from a sociological perspective that the first large groups of people who left their houses and went outside and kind of congregated were the social justice warriors that I ha saw doing marches and protests around New York City in like early June. And I was I kept saying to myself, I'm like, What's really going to make everyone in general get back to normal is when the restaurant and bartenders get back outside because that's mm -hmm. what really drives social life around America, at least. It totally does. No, I, I, I'm with you on that. Um, so what was going on in June in terms of like the BLM riots? Did you encounter any tense situations? No. You know, no. No, right. I didn't see any riots. I think the social media clearly took video. New York City was not a big rioting place. There were some mm -hmm. streets which were, which I just avoid those streets anyway because they're just not safe streets to be on. So you just, when you live in New York City, you just know what streets to avoid. So I just wasn't around the streets anyway. And I just think the other cities were worse. The cities that were a little poorer than New York City were a little worse with rioting. Uh, New York City, I didn't feel tense. To me, my metric was if I see parents with their kids out on a picnic, I'm not scared. <laughs> like, yeah. if this mom is out there on a stroller at 9 p.m., you know, taking her daughter for a quick walk with their dog at 9 p.m. in the Upper East Side, I was like, I refuse to be more scared than these people. <laughs> like that to yeah. me was the litmus <laughs> test, you know? So you figured all of this out. You're, you're ahead of the game. You, you figured out what was going on. Like this isn't something to shut down our economy. You know, everybody has to wear masks forever. So how the hell did governments get this so wrong? Well, 
I think I saw very early in like February, I called it like governments are just going to use this to take away rights and gain more power because that's what governments do. Whenever there's a crisis, they opportunistically jump on this and use it to deploy more power and consolidate their power. So I saw that was going to happen in some way or the other. And no one freaking believed me, but whatever. Um, what they got wrong was they focused too much on accelerating vaccines, which ended up not being as effective as I believe they claimed them to be. And instead, they should have focused their money on treatments and on more granular tracking. So I think they should have gone. They reported where the COVID outbreak cases were on a state basis in America and then a county basis. But a county contains many, many towns. And they should have been block by block. They should have poured more resources into publicly sharing which blocks, which buildings specifically, the outbreaks occurred. And I think that just generally reporting what happened in a county made people scared unnecessarily and was actually a very unintelligent way of going about it. And then they focused on vaccines because that's all they know how to do, to partner with Big Pharma and what's going to make profit. Fuck that. They should have actually said, hey, here are the buildings where there's an outbreak at this date and this time. They should have been extremely granular. They were not granular enough, and any granular data they reported was not easily accessible by the public. They should have been saying, these are the streets where they, there was an outbreak. Not which county, not even which town, which streets. And if they were very specific about that people would have been intelligently avoided those streets. We would have been able to quarantine the right people, not everyone. And that's what they got wrong. They just, they completely was stupid by focusing all their money on vaccines and not treatment, and then all their money on uh, high level quarantines, like state by state quarantines or general policies, instead of focusing on extremely granular information, which could have made us all intelligently avoid the hot spots of the virus. That's what I think. I mean, I, that, that's it sounds like a, exactly what they should have done yeah, well, instead of. In charge, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> we need a lot better leadership. That's all that conversation, though. I mean, we've got so many clowns in there right now. Whenever, so whenever, you know, Trump, who, you know, I'll be candid, I am a supporter, generally speaking. There's a lot of issues there, but generally, I think he had his heart in the right place. But um, things really went wrong whenever COVID came along in terms of getting strung along by Fauci and um, Barbara Burks. And just, it seems like everybody came out of the woodwork and he was just kind of lost at sea and let these other people, you know, pull him every which way. But um, he really got behind Operation Warp Speed and rapidly developing a vaccine and getting the manufacturers to compete and develop their own versions of the vaccine. You know, he's bragged about getting it done in record time. Um, what were your thoughts on how, as this was transpiring, were you thinking, this is just all wrong? What are we doing? Um, what did you think about all that? Um, I didn't think it was all wrong. I do think modern biomedical technology to develop vaccines are going to be part of our future. So I didn't have a problem with the investment in it. I had a problem hmm. with when I saw that the vaccines were getting developed, I predicted they were going to get mandated and used as an excuse for tyranny, which I had a problem with. 
I have no problem with the vaccines in general. I have a problem with anyone who mandates them because I believe in my body, my choice. And I'm happy to say it out loud that I <laughs> did not take the vaccine. Yeah. So no, it... I have stayed unvaccinated. And I think that forcing people to take it is what I have a problem with. I have always said I am I am not vaccinated, but I am anti-mandate, not anti-vax. How did you know that they were going to mandate it? Oh, my God, because that's what governments do. They just do whatever they can to just control the people until the people fight back. That's just the natural evolution of governments. <laughs> yeah, I know you're right. And, and you look at places like Australia and Canada and... You know, I think I did. I say Australia or Austria. Well, both of those countries and Germany, are going man, down. Germany shouldn't yeah. do that. There's too much history in Germany. You <laughs> if there's one country that shouldn't have gone full fascist, it should have been Germany, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Don't replay. It Germany. Yeah. No, but it, it and I've got friends in Switzerland that are having all kinds of issues. Uh, just just kind of an interesting tidbit here. So, you know, Switzerland has been like most of Western Europe. And you have to have a vaccine passport to enter uh, public areas, bars, restaurants, etc. New York City, too. And, yeah. And so, you know, this is a total anti-vax guy. Like, he's an alternative medicine, ayahuasca, peyote, mushrooms. I mean, he's a, like a true natural guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's told me about what's going on over there. And they had a referendum recently a direct vote with the you know all swiss citizens could vote in to rescind that um you know those laws about not being able to go to certain places for the unvaccinated 60 percent of the citizens voted in favor of keeping the current restrictions but if you look at people under 35 58 percent voted against it so you've got this aging popu population that um they're so scared of this Whereas the young people are ready to live and they can't get away from all of the old people that aren't going to let them do it. That is interesting because I don't see that same trend in New York City. Mm. Um, I see a lot of young people in New York City who are very woke, who are fully supportive of all the mandates, including forcing children five years old and up to have taken two shots before they can go to a restaurant before they can sit at mcdonald's oh and my God. maybe in switzerland it's different because the older people are scared of their own health etc but in new york city it's very widely supported by people of all ages and the college kids have no issue saying oh i just uh you know, swipe my QR code to get into the building. That's just the way of life. Why are you making such a big deal out of it? And it's yeah. just very prevalent in New York City that all ages are very ideologically supportive of this. I was there uh, Saturday morning. I'd say even now, 90% of people on the streets outside are wearing masks and uh, avoiding everyone. We got to get you down to Miami. <laughs> <laughs> COVID doesn't yeah. exist down here and it, and it hasn't that, for a yeah. while and it's so refreshing. Now we will see people driving in a car by themselves with a mask on way too frequently. That's part of the ritual, man. It's part of the new cult ritual. It's declaring it's... their compliance. It's declaring their support for something, even if they don't actually think it'll save their lives. It's the new religion. Yeah, man. 
So how did this affect you and relationships with friends and family? Because I know with me, a lot of my historical friendships have changed and I can't even fully articulate why it is like I'm not out there in people's faces saying, no, the vaccine is terrible. Nobody, sh I don't believe that. I think there's people that should get it and certain people that shouldn't, but it's just changed things. And even amongst family in terms of holidays being canceled and kind of breaking those bonds. And uh, we're going to have to work on that moving forward and getting people back together again. What has your experience been like with friends and family? So from, with family, I've been very vocal from the start that I'm not taking the vaccine as it stands, but I'm also not going to let it come above family. And so whenever there was any slight disagreement or issue, I would immediately like video chat someone in my family and just have a conversation about it. Cause I'm like, listen, I've said my piece, but I'm not a zealot about it. And I just want to make sure that you're not uncomfortable with me never seeing my niece again or something like that. And I just was very like blunt about things with my family. Um, a lot of them disagree with me. There, a lot of them are taking their boosters very compliantly. They actually trust the science a lot more than me as a scientist, which is <laughs> funny and ironic. <laughs> oh, um, my God. My friends are somewhat of a different story. Um, some of them don't i've been uninvited to events i've had people cancel on me for many reasons i've had people who are just the smart and the smart friends i have are very disappointed in me and shaking their head as if i got caught up in ignorance and they're just like poor dt he just uh it's a shame that he got caught up in ideology and he doesn't really <laughs> understand the science and a lot of these are very intelligent and wealthy and professional middle-class friends who just shake their head at me as in the disappointed father figure and i don't care <laughs> but if they like i think that i've taken somewhat of the high road whereas i'm not pushing anyone away and i'm not forcing anyone to spend time with me but i'm also not going to censor myself or be quiet about my stance on things and if they want to exclude me well then they're the asshole that's how i see it no and i appreciate that approach it's really similar and i've got to be careful because you know people are tired of this i don't want to bring it up i don't want to beat the same drum but at the same time i'm a man of convictions you're a man of conviction and if people ask us a question, we're going to answer honestly, and they're going to get the unvarnished truth from our perspective. And a lot of this, you know, a lot of people have the right approach, I think, where that's a private medical decision that you shouldn't feel obligated to share. Absolutely. Point. And I respect that. I don't, I don't declare it. I'm not a zealot about it. If someone asks me, I won't lie, but I don't also volunteer the information. If someone says, hey, to come to my wedding, you have to be vaxxed. I said, okay, well, I can't go then. Sorry. Or if someone asks me to a restaurant in New York City, I have to say no, but I don't volunteer that information unless they put me in a situation where they actually know it's going to challenge me. And I think a lot of these people, they subconsciously want to know where I stand on things, so they kind of push you to the edge to see how you'll react. And that's a nasty subconscious impulse of them. And they'll purposely invite me to things that they know I can't go to just to see where I stand. It's oh, that's definitely a tactic. Yep. There is no question about it. Yeah, they want to put you on the hot spot. They want yep. to trap you. 
and then clown you if they can, right? But they get shocked flex. when I'm blunt about it. They're not expecting that. They're expecting me to pussyfoot about it. Yeah, well, what I know, buddy, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't volunteer it, but I don't lie either. I'm very blunt, yeah. but I'm not a fanatic. No, but it, it, it's shocking when somebody will just say, ask you straight out, have you been vaccinated? I've had it one time at the Miami airport where I was, it felt like some kind of interrogation. And I'm like, who are you? You know, you're working for an airline and you're asking me if I've been vaccinated. And in a hostile manner, it's so weird to be asked a Did question like Did you just like cough that. loudly in their direction? I should have. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely should have. I, I tried to be nice. I tried to be, you know, not an asshole about it. And I don't think it would have mattered either way. But that's, again, that's a whole other thing. Um, so listen, um, you know, so you're, you're doing consulting, you're helping companies, you've got your own business. What, what other things are you working on, man? I got my app. No one, not many people know this. I have a book and podcast summary app called meetiris.app, M-E-E-T-I-R-I-S.app. And we have one, I'm super passionate about being the signal and the noise in this in this age of information overload and excessive amount of stupid content out there, I'm trying to be the signal. And I am passionate about philosophy. I'm passionate about reading. I'm passionate about science. I'm passionate about mathematics. I'm passionate about uh, persuasion and all those books out there in human history. And so I developed this app with a co-founder and a team now where we condense these books and podcast episodes into the most info dense rich stuff that you'll ever read in 15 minutes 15 minutes of reading one of our summaries will expand your mind at the same rate that a 10 hours reading a book will and so meet iris.app and this week we just launched our discord so we're trying to have more discussions about the stuff meet iris.app slash discord and so I am just really passionate about, I think every personal brand and every creator needs their own app. I think people who don't have their own app are doing themselves a disservice. And I think in the future, everyone will have their own app. So that is the other main thing that I am passionate about. That's I do outside of even my medical AI business. Well, first of all, I'm looking at this and it's friggin' awesome. I mean, very, very well done. I can try it for free. Um, it looks like you've got really good ratings on the App Store and in Google Play. Yeah, we're at like 4.8, 4.9 stars. Outstanding. Yeah. Outstanding. And it looks like some really good, really good works here. So let me, I'm scrolling down here. Uh, I can try for seven days risk-free. Yeah, got just some great go to meetiris.app slash download. Yeah. And that's a direct link to the App Store. So we could just download it immediately without even going through our website. And it's very reasonable. I'm looking at your pricing here for two years, yearly, monthly. This yeah. is a drop in the bucket, and you're going to get some great curated content from a really smart guy. Especially because I actually used to write and handwrite a lot of the original summaries of this app. I'd say about 60% of them I wrote myself. Oh, that's awesome. So, so you're getting my own, my own – other people wrote blogs. I wrote my own summaries of books. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to have to sign up. I'm looking at these, at all the book, books you have here, and these are things that I wouldn't have the time to go through all of these books. Wow. Check out I our mean, Discord, are... man. Seriously, check okay. out the Discord. You'll like the Discord. Awesome. 
Every 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 company these days needs a community aspect of it. They need discussions. They need to not just be a stagnant company. They need to have flowing discussions. And if people want to talk to me, I'm on that Discord a lot, but I'm also on Twitter as Deeper Thrill. So you can always DM me about any topics. That's awesome. Well, guys, um, it's been an honor to have Deeper Thrill join us this evening. Go check him out at Deeper Thrill on Twitter. He's got one of the best accounts out there. He's got a lot of great things going on. And uh, we're going to have to do this again. Definitely. And if you rearrange the letters of Deep Thrill, it spells the red pill. <laughs> I'll end Hell on yeah. that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, we really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for joining Thank us. And um, again, we're going to have to do this real soon. I'm, I'm open to it. Awesome. Appreciate your time.